Okay, we're going to read Psalm 2, all of it, and then the first seven verses of Psalm 110. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let's flip over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are sovereign. You have installed your son surely and permanently at your right hand. He will reign. He will judge. You've given judgment into his hand, Father. Help us to know and to discern the times and to discern our own time and where we fit in it, Father. Help us to honor you as the righteous and sovereign creator and judge of the universe. It is your son into whose hand these things have been committed, Father. I pray that we'd honor him. Help Tom as he preaches the word to us today and write it in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. We live today in an age in which even the church itself is infected with the myth of the non-judgmental Jesus. A carefully reconstructed Christ who is too tolerant to call anyone's moral choices evil and is too loving to ever condemn anyone for doing what someone believes is okay with God. It is no wonder, friends, that we find ourselves in a cultural context in which violating God's clearly revealed design for marriage and sex is now a federally protected civil right with tax benefits. 
a context in which most teenagers in America, according to Barner Research, believe that not recycling their garbage is a greater moral infraction than spending hours a day looking at pornography. A church that lacks the courage to plainly say what God says about Christ, what God says about sin and righteousness and judgment, will have no impact in a world that has systematically denied all three of those realities, sin and righteousness and judgment. Can you imagine Christianity without sin without the reality of sin and righteousness and judgment. I make no apologies for either the theme or the focus of this morning's message because it is not unloving to tell people about the judge of all mankind who will very soon come to execute His fierce and eternal judgment against sin and sinners. In fact, it is unloving not to tell people about Him and about His judgment. Two of the most gracious and loving things that God has done for mankind ever since the Garden of Eden are first, to spell out the distinction between good and evil, and second, to make very clear the consequence of committing evil as God defines it. When God gave Adam and Eve everything they could ever need in the Garden of Eden, but forbade them to eat from only one tree, He told them very clearly, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. He spelled out for them what they were to recognize as good in His sight and what they were to recognize as evil in His sight. And He spelled out with equal clarity what the consequence would be if they violated His will and chose evil instead of good. They believed Satan's denial of both of those declarations of God. They saw the good as less good than God said it was, and they saw the evil as the ultimate good that they absolutely had to have. They believed that God would not judge what He called evil as He said He would. But He did. And the death of relationship with God that they experienced that very day infected all of mankind since that day all the way to this day. We are all under the curse that God imposed on His creation because of that sin. God gave Noah... He gave the people in Noah's day several decades to watch Noah and his family build an ark. 2 Peter 3, verse 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That word means a proclaimer. It means that Noah didn't build the ark in silence. He spoke of the righteousness of God to the people all around him. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And that that is a loaded verse. 
through both his proclamation of the truth of God and his obedience to the truth of God, Noah condemned the evil in that generation while at the same time warning of God's coming judgment. But the people were not willing to accept that their actions were evil and they were not willing to believe that God would deal with what He called evil the way He said He would. But He did. And Noah's family were the only human survivors on the face of the earth. God told Israel and Judah much later, very clearly and very long in advance, that He would send them into exile into foreign nations if they persisted in the idolatry and apostasy that so characterized God's own covenant people. He spelled out for them that which was good in His sight and that which was evil in His sight. The law was gracious. And He told them the consequence of doing evil. He even told them how many years they would spend in exile. The rulers and the people of Israel and Judah were not willing to agree with God that their actions were indeed evil. And they did not believe that He would do such a fearsome thing to His own people. But He did. The only times in the Old Testament that God relented from carrying out a fierce judgment that He had foretold was when the people who were marked out for that judgment repented. When they believed His warnings and fell upon His mercy, clinging to Him as the One who controls all blessing and all curse. God has very graciously and very clearly told mankind through His faithful prophets and apostles what is good and what is evil in His sight. And friends, He has told us very clearly the consequence of the evil that we have all done. That we have all done. He has told us of the judgment that will soon come from Almighty God through the hand of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Two of the most catastrophically foolish things that any human being or any nation will ever do, let me say that again, two of the most catastrophically foolish things that any person or any nation will ever do are A, to call evil good and good evil, and B, to believe that God will not judge what He calls evil the way He says that He will. None of us can afford to get either of those things wrong. We're going to talk this morning about the Old Testament witness and the New Testament witness concerning the coming judge and the coming judgment. There are two essential parts to the Old Testament witness. The first is that Messiah, Son of God, is going to fiercely judge rebellious men. The second is that the judge is the only Savior. Both of the Psalms that Kerry read a moment ago, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, have been recognized by many Jewish theologians as messianic over many, many generations Both of them speak of the shattering of earthly kings and kingdoms that is going to come by the hand of Messiah on the day of judgment. Psalm 110 says that He will fill the nations with corpses. In one battle in Revelation, He will fill a valley up to the bridles of the horses with the blood of men for 200 miles. 
Beloved, is that a non-judgmental Christ? Psalm 2, which Peter attributes to King David in Acts chapter 4, is the most explicitly messianic of all the Psalms. It was written a thousand years before the first coming of Christ. It refers to one person as Messiah, God's Messiah, God's King, and God's Son. God's Messiah, God's King, and God's Son. Along with a multitude of other Old Testament passages, these two Psalms reveal that God has given the task of judgment into the hands of His Son, Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, the long-promised King in the line of David. The reason for God's coming judgment against all the nations is clearly established in these Psalms as in countless other passages in both Testaments. The nations and their rulers are in rebellion against God. David's description of man's high-handed rebellion against God exposes the heart behind that rebellion. He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. At the very heart of man's rejection of God and of the Son of God is just plain old pride. Men see submission to God as an unbearable burden that must be cast away. It must be put off at all costs. And the first casualty in man's rejection of God is the truth. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 28. I'm not going to put it up there, but look at it in your Bibles. There is a marvelous passage in Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 22 that I will read. This passage paints a vivid picture of the refuge of lies, the refuge of lies that Israel painstakingly constructed and nurtured to enable them to fearlessly cast off the fetters, the, the bonds, of the God who had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. Listen as I read. Verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. The hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the secret place. And your covenant with death shall be canceled and your pact with Sheol shall not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through. Then you will become its trampling place. 
As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And listen, and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. When the judgment of God comes, it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For Yahweh will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do His task, His unusual task, and to work His work, His extraordinary or strange work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. I have heard from the Lord of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. You get the picture? Men convince themselves that they are safe in their sin, that they will be untouched by the judgment of God. Either they deny that God exists or they deny that His judgment applies to them. But they are catastrophically fatally wrong. The fortress that they painstakingly construct to be their safe place to hide them from the fierce judgment that every one of us deserves is constructed constructed entirely out of lies. It's constructed entirely out of lies. There's a passage in Isaiah 5 that says sin is dragged along with cart ropes, and the ropes are lies. The ropes are falsehoods. The only way to propel sin, the only way to make sin mobile is to lie. There will be no escape for the refuge that men have have contrived. No refuge will protect when the day of the Lord comes. Isaiah, in that in that passage paints a pathetic picture of a man trying to protect himself from massive building-destroying hailstones and from raging floodwaters by crawling into his bed. And it says there is no bed big enough and there are no covers big enough to protect him. It's Consider the irony of that. If... If hailstones are falling from heaven that would break through the ceiling of this building and pummel us to death, and if raging floodwaters are coming upon this building, how much, how much value are you going to get by crawling into a bed? It's a, it's a vivid picture. It's an overwhelming scourge. And beloved, the only Savior from this judgment, the only refuge from this judgment is the judge. Because it is His wrath that is coming upon mankind. It's not an accident. It's not something that God's trying to figure out how to protect people from. It comes from Him that was well established this morning in the worship. The only Savior from this judgment is the judge. The one and only refuge, the one and only safe place for men to go so they they will not be trampled down by the overwhelming scourge of, of the fierce wine press of the wrath of God 
is the costly cornerstone that Isaiah talks about right in the middle of that passage in Isaiah 28, verse 16. That cornerstone is the judge. That cornerstone is Jesus. On one side of verse 16 is the people's declaration that their refuge will protect them, their refuge of lies and deception, that they will not experience the scourge, the judgment when it comes. And on the other side of that verse is God's declaration that He will trample them down. And He will put an end to their pact with death and their pact with Sheol and their their fortress built out of lies. He will put an end to it and sweep it away. And right in the middle of that passage is Christ. The only safe place. Isaiah 28.16 is the same verse that Paul quotes in Romans 10 when he says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And the, the word here in the Hebrew when it says, whoever believes will not be disturbed, what it actually means is will not be in a hurry. Will not be in a hurry. Hailstones are falling from heaven, destroying everything in sight. An overwhelming flood, a massive flood is approaching like a tsunami. And if you're standing on the cornerstone, you're not in a hurry to go anywhere else because you are in the right place. And it is well with your soul. The last verse of Psalm 2, after, in Psalm 2, after developing the rebellion of the people and the coming judgment by the hand of, of God's anointed, God's Son, God's King, there's one little phrase right at the end of that passage and it says, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The Old Testament witness then is that Messiah, the Son of God, will fiercely judge men's rebellion and that the only Savior from the judgment is the judge. The New Testament witness is that Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, the Son of God, will fiercely judge rebellious men and that the only Savior from the judgment is the judge. The New Testament witness concerning the coming judge and the coming judgment is precisely the same as the Old Testament witness. John 5, verses 21 to 29. It's all there. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So who does all the judging? the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That last sentence does away with all manner of false religion created by men. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Any religion that does not acknowledge the Son of God as co-equal with the Father is heresy. And there are very, very many of them. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, He who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is already crossed over out of death into life. The judge is the Savior. 
Verse 24 is one of the most magnificent promises in the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes the testimony of the one who sent me through all the prophets, through all the miracles, through all the works of the Holy Spirit, through all the declarations that, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, whoever believes the witness of my Father has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has already crossed over out of death into life. What a promise. And then Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. The perfect man gets to execute judgment on mankind. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Were it not for the, for the one righteous act of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.18, we would all be on the wrong side of that equation. All of us. Because as Jesus told the rich young ruler, there is no one good but God. Revelation 20 tells us how John 5 will actually play out when the day of the Lord comes. And I just want you to listen to this. This passage in Revelation 20 tells us there are two resurrections, two deaths, and one judge. Two resurrections, two deaths, and one judge. Revelation 20, starting at verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And listen, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so the first resurrection is those who belong to Christ who are raised up to rule with Him in His kingdom. The second resurrection we'll get to in a minute. He then says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these... The second death has no power. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then comes the eternal state if you believe that there's a millennial kingdom first, as I do. Okay, so the first death, the first death is physical death. And we are, that's universal. We're all subject to that one ever since Adam. Everyone who is part of the first resurrection will never experience a death beyond that first death. That'll be it. They will be raised from the dead unless they're still standing when Jesus comes back and then they'll follow those who are raised from the dead. And they will, they will reign with Christ in His kingdom and they will dwell with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's our hope, brothers and sisters. That's our hope. 
They will not experience the second death. Just a little later in Revelation 21, starting at verse 11, we find out what the second death is. And listen carefully. Especially if you think that Jesus is a milk and cookies kind of Savior. If, if you think that He's not judgmental. If you think that He's, he's all about letting people decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And He's going to endorse that. If that's your view of Jesus, listen carefully. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. There was no hiding. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, in those first books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. That's the second resurrection. And friends, everybody who is a part of that second resurrection are apostate. These are the people who have rejected Christ. These are the people in every age of mankind who have turned away from the Word of God that declares the coming Messiah and the Messiah who came. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And they all fail. Then death and Hades, all of them, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death is hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Earlier in, the, in Revelation, it describes it as a lake of fire and brimstone of constant torment. Jesus called it a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. None of those, beloved, who are part of the first resurrection will be judged at the great, great white throne judgment of Christ. will be on the other side of the judgment seat. All of those who are part of the second resurrection will be judged at that judgment. They will be judged according to their works and they will all fail. Just like all of us would have if we were subject to being judged according to our deeds. But Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes the testimony of him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into life. So we'll be on the other side of the judgment seat. When that great white throne judgment comes, there will be no more of God's gracious temporary judgments that filled the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. Those will be gone. Those were gracious. The worst that those resulted in was physical death. And Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both the body and the soul in hell. Does that sound like a non-judgmental Jesus? The only Savior from the judgment is the judge. But friends, and this is so important, that we bear this to the world just as we bear the message of the coming judgment. The one who is coming to judge is the same one who already came to save. To save people who absolutely deserve the full measure of His judgment for all eternity. People who deserve hell. People like you and me. 
When we present the gospel and we leave it unsaid that we deserve eternal condemnation, when Christians carry signs that say God hates fags, that's not the gospel, people. Because we all deserve the eternal damnation that comes from the Son of God. And that needs to be made clear. Listen again one more time to John 5.24, what Jesus says to all who, who believe His Father's witness concerning Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into life. And we get to tell the whole world about that. If you hear the Gospel of Jesus today and you believe in Him, you will not come into judgment. There is a judgment of believers in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, but it is a judgment of rewards. God will look at the quality of the works that He did through us, and there will be rewards. And Paul says each man's praise will come to him from God. But we who trust in Jesus will never stand before Him to be judged worthy or unworthy to enter His kingdom and to dwell with Him forever. But You know why? Because we've already been declared unworthy. But for all who trust in Jesus, the judgment that was due to us, the payment of our sin debt to God, that, that eternal and infinite debt that we owe to God because of our rebellion against Him, has already been rendered. That judgment has already been rendered by the judge. The judge is the sacrifice. The judge is the Savior. The judge is the one who bears what we were supposed to bear. We who deserved only condemnation and have believed in Jesus have been covered by the atoning blood and the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We've already crossed over out of death into life. And guys, the judge of all creation is now our greatest advocate. Listen to Familiar passage, what Paul says about every believer's relationship to the judge. Every believer's relationship to the judge. The one who has every cause, every single day, to bring a condemning charge against us. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus. If you stop right there, well, but, but don't stop. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So once you've crossed over out of death into life, who can separate you from Christ? No one. And that includes you. Beloved, the judge of all mankind is the perfect Savior of all who believe in Him. He is our perfect high priest. He is our perfect advocate with the Father. Every accusation that Satan hurls at us is intercepted and squashed because Jesus says, nope, this one has been plucked from the fire. Zechariah 3. If you came here today counting on anything that you have to offer to God, then you came here today destined to suffer from the hand of Jesus the full weight of the fierce wrath of God that every one of us deserves. But if you trust in Him right where you sit, if you will trust in Him with childlike faith, your judge who became the perfect sacrifice and died in your place will be your Savior. And from this day forward, for all eternity, your place in His kingdom will be forever settled. And your life from this day forward will belong entirely to Him. Your life from the moment you come to faith in Him will belong entirely to Him. And that will be the very greatest thing that could ever be said about you. Is that you are owned by Christ. I just want to wrap up by considering what this means for us in today's cultural context. I I said earlier that two of the most catastrophically foolish things that any human being or any nation will ever do are call evil good and good evil. And B, believe that God will not judge evil every bit as fiercely as He has declared that He will. If we as the redeemed of God sit back silently while the world rewrites the Bible to make it comfortable and reconstructs Jesus to make Him harmless, then we are more guilty than they because we know the truth. Beloved, our witness concerning Christ must match up with God's witness. We cannot proclaim Jesus as Savior if we do not proclaim Jesus as Judge. If we do not proclaim that the one whose fierce wrath he died to save us from is him. The popular construct of Christ that is gaining more and more traction, even in the evangelical church, at its worst denies that sin is sin. And at its best, and it's not good at all. It tells believers that if we don't tread lightly on the matter of judgment, or even better, not mention judgment at all, we're actually driving people away from Christ. And beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. If you believe that lie, you are falling into a trap that's, that's right, right into the hands of Satan. There's no greater way for Satan to defeat the church than for him to get us to diminish the need that people have for Jesus. The Bible devotes far more verbal real estate to talking about judgment than it does to talking about salvation. If you want an example, go look at Deuteronomy 28. Verses 1 through 14 are about the blessings upon those who obey God. And verses 15 to 68 are about the curses that come upon those who disobey God. Psalm 2. The whole psalm is about the coming judge and the coming judgment. And right at the end it says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. That extreme waiting, W-E-I-G-H-T, that extreme waiting of, 
of the testimony of Scripture in the direction of judgment is not because judging is dearer to God's heart than saving. God delights in saving. Otherwise, He would not have sent His own beloved Son to pay the debt of our sin so He could save the miserable likes of us that we might be able to dwell with Him forever. And if you doubt that statement, that God delights in saving, come talk to me. i got a bunch of biblical ammo to give you. But it is not the promise of salvation from the due penalty of sin that men are most prone to reject. See, most people who believe in a righteous God believe that they've done things that have offended him or her. Things that deserve some kind of punishment. And they love the idea that their God, or at least their favorite God, is eager to forgive them. Why wouldn't he, considering all the good things that they've done to offset the bad? No, what makes men vigorously reject the Christ of the Bible is that the Bible clearly and repeatedly and emphatically declares this about us, every one of us, that the penalty we all deserve from His hand is hell. And that all of our pathetic efforts to earn His favor are just filthy rags in His sight that further seal our condemnation. All of them! I've been to plenty of funerals where the preacher makes it sound like everybody in the room is going to spend eternity with the deceased in a place of wonderful happiness and bliss. Nobody squirms at those funerals. Even if they don't believe in God or heaven, those messages are harmless. But as soon as you point out from the Bible that the deceased and everyone else in the room, including you, fully deserve God's eternal wrath because of our high-handed rebellion against Him, the squirming starts. A funeral message that lavishes praise upon a human being and makes no mention of sin and righteousness and judgment and of the deliverance from judgment that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only one worthy of praise in the first place. That kind of funeral is worse than useless. And if your reaction to that is, oh, but funerals are supposed to be about comforting the family of the deceased, not about introducing them to the one and only Savior, then you're a poster child. You're a poster child for this whole popular notion of the non judgmental Jesus, and it's garbage. God knows how we're wired. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16. There's a reason so much of the Old Testament comes as an indictment of Israel and all mankind. And the reason, beloved, is that lost people desperately need convicting. Mankind is in a state of perpetual denial when it comes to what we actually deserve from the hand of God. And brothers and sisters, one of the most foundational reasons that God has left you and me here on earth is to make that denial hard to maintain, not easy to maintain. The surest way to keep lost people from coming to trust in the one and only Savior is to deny or diminish their need for the salvation that He alone provides. When professing Christians like Rob Bell deny the reality of hell, that's what they're doing. They're keeping people from Christ. But the error is usually a lot more subtle than that. When you and I treat things that God calls evil as if they're kind of okay with God, we are opposing the advancement of the Gospel and we are keeping people out of heaven. The single most unloving thing that any believer will ever do to an unbeliever is make it easy for him to believe that he doesn't need Christ. 
Peter anticipated, and I'm about to wrap up, he anticipated exactly what we're facing today in 2 Peter 3. He saw the beginnings of it in his generation, but he knew that a day was coming when it would be far worse. He said, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, to Christians, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? And what they mean is the coming of, his, of this judgment that everybody's talking about. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. If God was going to judge, He would have already done it. That's the argument. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed. Being flooded with water. But the present heavens and the present earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of destruction of the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Listen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking for and hastening the overwhelming scourge. Looking for and hastening the glory. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Why, brothers and sisters, must we who know this judgment is coming be holy in conduct and godliness? It's not because our destiny is still in question, but it is because countless people all around us are on a collision course with the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And God intends to use our lives and our proclamation to pluck them out of the fire and bring them to Himself. The day of visitation is the day of judgment. The time between this day and that one may be very, very short. It may not even be a whole day. Until then, let's grab the hands of as many people as we can and let's introduce them to the one and only judge because He is the one and only Savior. Loving Father, would You break us of our timidity? Would You give us courage to speak to declare the same things, Lord, that You have declared through the prophets and apostles since the very beginning. Let us not be timid, Father. Let us be very consistent 
Cause us, Father, to be very consistent about the fact that we deserve the very judgment that we proclaim and that the judge is our Savior. Dear Father, use us powerfully in this world. Let us not agree with the world about the things that keep people from Christ, but let us speak boldly and let us be courageous and let us take whatever hit that brings to us, knowing, Lord, that as we participate in the sufferings of Christ, we shall participate in His glory. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.